0: This week, Cameron and Sarkozy in Libya. What do they hope to achieve?
1: We must keep on with the NATO mission until civilians are all protected and until this work is finished. We will help you to find Gaddafi and to bring
2: him to justice.
0: Is the violence in Kabul a sign of things to come? And George Cross recipient Matt Croucher looks back at 90 years of heroes. Prime Minister David Cameron and the French President Nicolas Sarkozy have been in Libya today to meet members of the National Transitional Council. Both leaders have announced a raft of measures to help the people of Libya.
1: We must keep on with the NATO mission until civilians are all protected and until this work is finished. We will help you to find Gaddafi and to bring him to justice. And we also want to help you to take the dangerous weapons out of Libya, whether that is surface-to-air missiles, whether it is the mines that will prove such a problem to your people.
0: David Cameron speaking a little bit earlier on in Tripoli. Oliver Miles was a British ambassador to Libya and joins us uh, now. Oliver, thank you very much for being with us on the programme. What do they hope to achieve from the visit today?
2: Well, I think it's a a kind of a celebratory visit. It's to to mark the end or nearly the end of this um, period of of fighting which was uh, in which NATO and particularly Britain and France were a big support to to Libya
0: Um, I mean they're obviously keen to show at least the beginning of uh, the end game in Libya, is that premature at this stage?
2: Well I hope not (laughs) Um, the fact is things have moved very quickly in the last um, two or three weeks in Libya after a a prolonged period of standoff but they're not actually completed yet Uh, there are still Gaddafi supporters holding out in three or four centers, not very large centers, but sufficiently large uh, to be a, a real worry to the, uh, to the Transitional National Council.
0: Uh, you, you know the country better than most, uh, Oliver. Is Libya capable of moving on swiftly?
2: Well, that's very difficult to say because the Libya I know was the Libya of Gaddafi, and uh, the Libya of Gaddafi is a very different thing from what we see today. Everybody who's been observing Libya, I think, in in the last few weeks has been extremely, or months, I should say, has been extremely impressed by the way that the Transitional National Council, facing a very, very difficult situation after the collapse of a regime which had been there for 40-odd years, um, has managed to maintain a decent level of security. Uh, There's been one serious Uh, blot on that record, which was the murder of the the military commander in in Benghazi, Abdul Fattah Yunus, uh, a couple of months ago now, I think it was. But apart from that, uh, security has been good. The the, uh, level of of supplies for the people, of essentials like water and and electricity and food have have, uh, been uh, at an astonishingly good level, really, considering the awful awful situation that one might have seen there. Everyone, of course, makes a comparison with, with Iraq, where the the arrival of the victorious allies was followed by a period of total anarchy and looting and destruction. Nothing like that in Libya.
0: I guess some of the um, measures that David Cameron has announced today go some way towards trying to avert a similar thing happening. I mean, Britain has pledged to deploy uh, a UK military team to advise the NTC on security, to make hospital places in the UK uh, available for critically ill Libyans and to provide money for demining and police communications. What did you make of some of those
2: measures? Well, I think the, the, the first thing to say, and it's a good thing to say about them, is that I think all these things are response in response to priority requests from the Libyan side. And I think that's a very important point because I do think that the, there is a risk in a situation like this that uh, countries like Britain and France, which have played a big part in the, in the ending of the, the old regime, Uh, will overplay their hand and outstay their welcome. And what I would like to see is Britain responding to requests from Libya for help, which I believe will be forthcoming, and I think that's what's happening right now. And when I say requests for help, don't don't forget that Libya is uh, a rich country. Not right now, it isn't, because all the money's been frozen. But uh, in the medium and long term, it's a rich country. They're not asking for help in the sense that they need us to pay for their help. They're asking for help, which they will pay for.
0: Stay there, Oliver. Let's bring in um, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst. Christopher, I know you've been in Rome all week chatting to various NATO advisers about a variety of topics. Obviously, Libya, I presume, is one that you've been talking about quite a lot. What's, what's the whisper?
1: Yeah, you, you, you talk to the French
0: and they talk about
1: Sarkozy. They, they call him Sarkozy, the, 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 the Libyan, um, that in the Elysee Palace, he has been there. He's been going over the maps. He has been going over the, the, the military Uh, operational details in in absolute detail one of the French said to me, perhaps predictably he said, ah, is it your Cameron Uh, tagging along, tagging (laughs) along he said, this is our meeting here but the important thing they say is exactly the point that Oliver's making Um, this is the Libyan show if they want any help ask for it, we must not try to and we wouldn't get away with imposing it the first thing they need to do, once they've got all the utilities up and running, to some extent the security uh, is in place anyway, they've got to get the oil moving. Because at the end of the day, as Oliver says, they are rich, but they are oil rich. And that is important thing. Now, you then talk to the French, you talk to the, uh, to the, even to the Dutch about this, and they say, well, there's one word that they're talking about, and that is the word total. And it total doesn't mean complete. It means Total Oil, which is the French oil company. This is about oil. All the oil contracts are likely, according to the people in Rome, all the oil contracts are likely to stay in place. Not People are not going to be usurped, but the French are going to be there at the front of it. And there is this balance between, ah, oh, well, you know, Cameron, who he, sort of, Ed. Uh, the truth is uh, it's about Libya It is not about the politics of Sarkozy and Cameron.
0: Uh, Let's pick up on a couple of those things, uh, Oliver Miles. Firstly, the oil. David Cameron did uh, make pains to say that it is about getting the oil flowing again in terms of uh, a Libyan economic recovery, but that isn't an entirely selfless act, is it?
2: Of course not. No, the world needs Libyan oil and, and Libya needs the world's money. It's not, not selfless at all. It's a, it's a win-win for Libya and the rest of the world. I must say I rather doubt the idea of total oil in Libya. Uh, the fact is that the, the oil scene has been dominated for years by the Italians and it will be very, very difficult to change that because the Italians are producing most of the oil which, is actually, which was being produced before this crisis and I'm sure they will continue to do so are there, they're not there in such a uh, um, big time as BP and Shell, and come to that the American companies, and don't forget there are oil companies from all over the world there as well, there are Russian companies, Chinese companies, Australian, Greek, you name it, Brazilian, everybody.
0: Uh, Just quickly, Oliver, what about the image that's been portrayed today from David Cameron? Obviously, uh, up there shoulder to shoulder, you like, with Nicolas Sarkozy, who's been, I guess, seen as leading the European venture in some ways. Uh, David Cameron spoke second at the podium. It was a French helicopter ferrying them around. Are we reading too much into that?
2: Well, I think you probably are, yes. I think that that the the French and the British uh, and some of the other NATO countries and some of the other Arab countries which took part in the military operation will have their moment of glory and perhaps their moment of gratitude. But I wouldn't build too much on that. I don't for a moment believe that in a year's time... If uh, there's a contract comes up and there's a Chinese company which makes a better offer than a British company, don't expect the British company to get the business. It's not realistic.
0: Uh, Oliver, just finally, let's talk about Endgame for a moment or two. How far are we off uh, any kind of resolution in Libya?
2: The big question, of course, is still uh, what's going to happen about Gaddafi. Uh, Nobody knows where he is. Uh, he, there are three or four places in Libya where he easily might be hiding, in which case he might be found. It's also possible that he's left Libya. Um, and if he's left Libya, then uh, he might be found wherever he's gone because um, people will be looking for him. But uh, that is the big unknown. If you put that on one side, I think that the military uh, conflict, which is still going on, as I say, there are three or four centres holding out against the, um, uh, the, the new um, government or the new administration. I think that will be settled in a matter of, of weeks, um, possibly even days. I don't believe any of those will continue to, to hold out for long. I may be wrong. I was wrong about Tripoli. I thought Tripoli would take longer than it did. Tripoli fell very, very quickly as soon as the, the move started.
0: Okay, Oliver. Oliver Miles, former British ambassador to Libya. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Still to come, is the government taking the cyber terror threat seriously enough? And George Cross recipient Lance Corporal Matt Croucher takes us through 90 years of heroes for a new book. News, discussion and analysis. This is SITREP on BFBS. It was an attack involving multiple suicide bombers, small arms fire and booby traps that lasted 20 hours and left 27 people dead. The US ambassador, Ryan Crocker, described the assaults on the US embassy, NATO headquarters and police buildings in Kabul as not a very big deal. But it was the longest attack in the Afghan capital since 2001. Bilal Sawari is the BBC's correspondent in Kabul, and he joins us on the line uh, now. Bilal, thank you very much for being with us. You're there. Was it a big deal, and was the ambassador right to use that terminology?
3: It was an extremely huge deal in so many ways. First, uh, it is unacceptable for Afghan uh, citizens Um, to witness several attacks uh, in the city of Kabul, highly protected, the capital of Afghanistan, where several armed attackers, armed with quite a huge stack of weapons, could walk in and target several key targets. In this case, uh, the attackers had been working as laborers in this building, which was still under construction. Fourteen-story building is quite high in, in, in Afghanistan's capital. And for all this time... Afghanistan's intelligence, police and other security services, including NATO's and in other Western countries, failed uh, to, to uh, detect anything unusual.
0: You say it's unacceptable for ordinary Afghans. Who then do they blame? Do they blame uh, ISAF? Do they blame the Taliban? Do they blame the Afghan security forces?
3: Well, if you talk to ordinary Afghans, which I have and I always do, they say, look, uh, it's not acceptable for aid nine in ten suicide attackers to come into Kabul with RPGs, rocket-propelled grenades, and heavy machine guns. They talk about the attack on the Intercontinental Hotel, on the British Council, and now this one. Uh, They expect, uh, uh, first, the Afghan security institutions to stop this, but they also say, look, you know, there are thousands of foreign forces, especially in Kabul, what are they here for if they can't stop something like this? And obviously, um, you can't blame people in Kabul. You can't blame Afghans because um, they have gone through quite a lot in the last 20 years or so. once sped and twice shy, uh, as one local resident told me. Uh, and every time there's an explosion, every time there's an attack like this, it shatters the confidence of the people. And uh, as my colleague Quentin Somerville reported yesterday, counterinsurgency is about reassuring a very frightened population, a very mistrustful population, in this case the Afghans, that, look, the government is in charge and we can protect you, specifically right in the heart of Kabul. Uh,
0: Bilal, stay there a second. Christopher, uh, what does this attack say about the Afghan security forces' um, ability to keep Kabul safe? Well, the first thing
1: is that it is pretty clear from what I'm hearing is that NATO, ISAF, uh, actually knew that something was on its way. That's the first thing. The second thing is the assessment, uh, the uh, the threat assessment in Kabul was incomplete. The most obvious place to put just one sniper uh, was being built in front of everybody's eyes. People knew that something could happen. It's all right saying, well, the terrorists have only got to get through once, and we've got to protect every time, but that was uh, a perfect example. The second or the third part of this is who made the attack. That becomes very important. It becomes very important when you start thinking about particular groups which are Pakistan-based, which have been, for example, the focus of tension of, of the predator drones. Uh, that's another part of it. And the final aspect of this is that in three years' time, there will not be a NATO force there to assist. Either the intelligence gathering, intelligence analysis, and then the response teams for the Afghan security forces. And that
0: probably, for people in Kabul, is the most difficult. To accept. The U.S. ambassador's response, Christopher, seemed to be to say almost, is that all Is that all you got, to use sort of boxing parlance? Is that is that the best you can throw at us? Uh, was he right to sort of make that judgment?
1: Well, I think he's right to make that judgment if he wants to sort of dismiss it and say, look, I mean, it's a terrible thing. You know, 27 people plus the wounded uh, dead. But in, in, in his context, uh, it is uh, saying, well, there weren't that many casualties and we overcame the attack. But what he's really doing is trying to dismiss what is potentially, and they only had to get two or three big ones on target, what potentially could be something of a disaster. And we come back to the fact that Ryan Crocker, the American, is thinking three years ahead when they pulled out and the Afghan
0: forces, the security forces are on their own. Uh, Bill Sawara, let's bring you uh, back in here. This sort of became a bit of a propaganda war after the event, didn't it? With with uh, sort of ISAF, their media department engaged in a sort of Twitter exchange with with members of the Taliban. What did you make of the aftermath and the the propaganda war that was being waged?
3: Well, it is a war of perceptions in many ways, and. and as, um, as uh, tough a truth as it may sound, uh, the Taliban media strategy is far better than those of the Afghan government and the international forces here. Their spokespeople are on Twitter, they're on Facebook, and they always, obviously, are not the most reliable source when they come up with uh, claims of killing dozens of soldiers. But uh, they know how to spread information. They know how to um, use Uh, new technology like Twitter and Facebook to their advantage. Uh, There is something that I wanted to uh, mention after what Mr. Uh, Christopher just said. Um, The Afghan security institutions uh, will tell you this, specifically the Afghan um, officials at a higher level within the country's intelligence service, that for as long as Pakistan's Inter-Services Intelligence, the ISI, assists and aids the Haqqani network, Uh, we will not be able to to stop such attacks. They also say the Haqqani network is now focusing on extending its influence to the neighboring provinces of Wardak, Logar, Ghazni, and Kabul. And in the words of one uh, Afghan spook, they want to strangle Kabul. Uh, They say that this is a group no different to lashkar Taiba. And if Indians can't deal with it in India... Uh, I don't think Afghanistan's security institutions will ever be able to fully deal with it. So that's at least the explanation coming from the Afghan official in a source of tension between Kabul and Islamabad as well.
0: In light of what you just said then Bilal you started by telling us what ordinary Afghans had been saying what's their view of security in Afghanistan after drawdown
3: uh, Afghan uh, people are for the presence of the international forces specifically those in Kabul. No one in this country has forgotten the fact that this country will go back to the pre-civil war days, that there will be fragmentation of power, there will be bloodshed on the streets of this country. And that is a fear shared by many, many, many Afghans, including my own family. My own family members uh, will tell you, look, you know if foreign forces leave tomorrow, we have an army that 's factional, we have a police force that 's simply not uh, up to the task and most Afghans um, who appear on TVs or debates they say, Look, we want a strategic partnership with the West, even if they pull out their troops, they should have bases. Uh, We should have some sort of guarantee that Afghanistan will not fall back to the pre-Civil War, pre-Taliban days. And specifically, Afghans are worried about uh, the two neighbors, Pakistan and Iran. Uh, They say that these are the two neighbors that have supported various factions. Uh, and um, that is a real fear. So if you think about it from the Afghan people's point of view, they still think that Afghanistan is like a sick patient, and the doctor is having a surgery, and in the middle of the surgery the doctor is taking their gloves off. That's a saying that I keep hearing everywhere I go, whether that's in Kabul or in the provinces. So that's what the Afghan uh, people think, that an international presence is needed for a foreseeable future.
0: Uh, Bilal, Bilal Sawara, we have to leave it there, but thank you very much uh, for joining us on the programme today.
4: The
0: A new Chatham House report on the UK's cyber security has criticised the government for not taking the threat seriously enough. The report says there is little sense of governmental vision and leadership on the issue, and that it was failing to provide an authoritative view of the problem. One of the report's authors, Claire York, joins us now. Claire, thank you very much for being on the programme. Mm-hmm. Uh, What has the report uh, surmised?
4: What we found is we found there's a lack of awareness at senior level of critical national infrastructure. That includes your services which provide energy, water, gas, communications networks and food supplies. And people aren't aware of how cyber vulnerabilities within their organisations might affect the security and reputation and finances of their organizations. But what we did is we looked at government but also at critical national infrastructure. It's very important that you have this public-private partnership between the two elements because what we found as well and what we've said in previous reports is this is not a problem for government alone. It has to be addressed at a society level because at the end of the day it is a society level problem.
0: Let's talk about the government response uh, before we get into the sort of uh, private sector response. The government has put cybersecurity on their coveted top four list of threats alongside things like sort of pandemics and uh, military action. Uh, so I guess that you would say that's, that's a good thing. But are they, are they doing enough?
4: Cybersecurity is certainly a challenge for the next few years, and it is high on the government's priority list. I think the problem with cybersecurity at the moment is people aren't entirely sure what the problem's. Will be how they will manifest themselves, and also what it means for different sectors of society. They are dealing with it. We're seeing a number of initiatives. We're seeing a number of government departments working on this issue. In fact, I think there might be some competition between different departments for who controls it. But we are expecting a government strategy to come out in the next few weeks. I think it's meant to be due soon. So they're looking at it. But it's one of these new problems. It's currently finding the parameters of the problem currently understanding how it should be defined and debated and that's really why it's hard to see a definitive solution
0: well well, today the mod has announced the appointment of air marshal sir Stuart peach as the first commander joint forces command or jfc this is the new structure Uh, one of the changes recommended in the defense review carried out by uh, lord levine i guess we're talking about joined up thinking in terms of cyber security Mm -hmm. that that's one of the key factors
4: isn't it absolutely no one sector can deal with this on its own and i think it's great that the military are beginning to look at this in a joint approach and I will be interested to see how it develops over the coming months and years but it's not just a problem for the military alone it has to be addressed by government and it does have to be addressed by organisations private and public including your banks energy suppliers um, and all those other food suppliers, communications networks, and the aim of the report was really to make sure that people are aware of quite what role they have in that dialogue.
0: Uh, Christopher Lee in the studio with me, uh, listening intently. What's, what's your take on the, the cyber threat and the government's response to it? Uh,
1: government, surprisingly, people knock the government on so many things. They're not that bad. They really do understand this. But, you see, I go and talk to the oil people. If you want to know what's going on in the Middle East, you go and talk to the oil people. And they talk about cyber security now, In a very, very big way, go and talk to to, to BP and Mm. see what they're thinking about it, and it is extremely impressive. But what we have to do, almost as a nation, is get into this whole idea of cybersecurity. There are a lot of people in sort of down-table positions in industry and commerce that, in fact, could be quite vulnerable and could cause things to happen. This is not simply getting sort of Norton security put into your, 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 your PC. It is, it is major, major thinking. Now, when you look at it at a government level, look at it what the MODs is doing, for example, you start thinking right at the top, uh, GCHQs involved. It's also, it is also not a, uh, a national thing. It is international I mean, it's an irony when NATO set up its new office on cyber cybersecurity in Tallinn. One of the first things that happened is it was hacked into. Now, it, was, it, it didn't matter that much at that stage. But it is an example that when I sort of this, – this on Monday, I was in Rome talking to people there about NATO. And they said, well, we're getting around about 800 hacks a week into our systems And I think he was probably making an underestimate. But you put that into commercial systems, you imagine being able to, because everything's computerized, you imagine being able to turn off the nation's gas supplies or the electricity supplies, and you can do it in half an hour. Go and talk to E.ON and see what they're doing about it, and they
0: say it's one of the biggest threats to society that we've got in the United Kingdom at the moment. Uh, uh, Claire York, without uh, completely freaking everybody out you might be listening to this, this is kind of scary stuff, isn't it, on a, on a personal level, on an, on an individual level as well?
4: It is something to be concerned about. I have to admit I would step away from the language that is a little bit too um, radical and extreme. This is something that we have to deal with, but I think... People are looking at this, people are managing, and Christopher is absolutely right. There are examples of best practice. Some organizations really get this, and that's one thing our report tried to identify. But there are a lot of people who just aren't aware of quite how this problem manifests itself, and that's really important, but it has to be dealt with in language that is proportionate to the threat, in language that is nuanced, and that also reflects the different dimensions, that a computer failure is not the same necessarily as a cyber attack.
0: Is it too simplistic then to give out any kind of advice to people who might be listening in terms of what they should be doing or we talked about not just simply updating your virus, antivirus software?
4: Yes, I mean I think it's being aware of the different ways in which the internet and information technologies have a role in your everyday life and we put so much information online. People use Facebook, they put their bank details into the online banking and they're not always aware of the security measures to make sure that that information is secure. We wouldn't dream of leaving a home without locking the door and we should start to see the computer in the same way and look in the workplace at where um, rogue emails might be coming in, can you identify them, is there that culture within organisations and within businesses that people know what to look for and know how to respond and that's I think still lacking.
0: Okay, Claire, you'll, we have to leave it there. But thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Now, what makes a hero? Is it an extraordinary act of bravery in the battlefield, triumph in the face of adversity, or a long-standing devotion to a cause? Well, one person who should know is Lance Corporal Matt Croucher, the Royal Marine who famously dived on a trip grenade in Afghanistan to save the lives of his men and was subsequently awarded the George Cross. Matt's story is well-known in recent years, but he's been looking back through history to choose a hero for every year from the last 90. It's all for a new book, celebrating the 90th anniversary of the Royal British Legion. I spoke to him earlier, and I asked him if it was difficult to choose 90 heroes.
5: Initially very easy, (laughs) until you get about half to two-thirds through and then actually linking individuals specifically to those years was um, very hard. But I'm pleased to say all 90 have got a a tangible link to that year Um, and there's a mixture of military actions, civil actions, um, there's even civilians in there that have done a lot for the Legion as well. Um, It gives a brief uh, history from 1921 till till the present day about what the Legion... Has achieved um, and what it's all about, basically.
0: It sounds like a mammoth task. Did you feel under any sort of pressure to select just one person for each year?
5: Um, we had a time frame, a very tight time frame. I know the the publishers, Harper Collins, were, um, I mean, and ahhing in whether they were even going to take the book on uh, as a project because it would usually take twelve to eighteen months. But we more or less did it in f- yeah four months or thereabouts. put a team together and got our heads down and, and got working on it.
0: Give us an idea of the sort of people that are in there. Throw us some names and some stories.
5: Um, everything from Johnson Bahari, um You've got the Victoria Cross out in, in Iraq that's, I suppose, been recently on Dancing on Ice. Um, right back to even before World War One, to be honest, because uh, the wars prior to um, World War One, the Legion still helped the individuals come 1921 when the Legion was uh, founded. Uh, right through to search air uh, rescue pilots um, in civil actions. Um, Dame Kelly Holmes is in there as well because she used to be in the British Army and she's done an incredible amount for the Royal British Legion over the years as an ambassador also.
0: Anybody else that's non-military that's that's interesting?
5: Um, There's there's Rosemary Powell, who I um, put as 2011 as well, Uh, Rosemary was at the very first poppy launch in 1921 and she's sold poppies ever since, uh, since 1921, every single year. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Rosemary a couple of months ago at Downing Street, having a chat to her and bless her, she's 96 years old now and she's still going strong and looking forward to this year and the poppy uh, appeal starting next month.
0: In terms of the military bravery, some of the stories that you 've encountered and read about and selected for the book, were there any common traits that you came across in terms of what makes a hero? Was it easy to define what makes a hero
5: I mean a lot of the guys are decorated, so I mean that 's a natural um, i suppose uh, mark to go off to look to look at people I suppose you would class as heroes i mean i don 't really class myself as a hero and i 'm sure the people in the book don 't really class themselves as heroes. It was just kind of doing our job, but it was quite fitting for the book um in terms of um i suppose links across the board uh, a lot of them were getting shot at during their actions uh, um the majority of uh are the army i think there's a good 50 percent that are army but there's also um a good few royal air force navy royal marine stories in there as well um some of the ones from world war Two with the royal air force are pretty incredible and the royal navy now yeah uh, and you actually look at that and think, well, I don't think those type of actions can happen now in the future with the modern aircraft we've got and the modern ships. So uh, it's interesting reading about those.
0: You said you don't consider yourself a hero as a George Cross winner. Was there any uh, temptation to sneak yourself in there?
5: Um, the, Harper Collins did mention about sticking my uh, myself in there, but... I think enough smoke's been uh, been blown
4: <laughs> in your me, direction, at, in my
5: direction. So we <laughs> see. So yeah. So I think it was blowing your own trumpet a bit if I put myself in the book as well. And it was lit, the, literally the book was uh, was done to um, hopefully achieve a hundred thousand pounds or more for the Royal British Legion this year.
0: Well, Matt, uh, thank you very much for coming in. Good luck with it. It's out today. Yeah, thank you thank very you much. much. Cheers. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Matt Croucher speaking to me uh, earlier on. Christopher, we do use the term hero a little bit too liberally these days, don't we?
1: I think we do. Um, that's not knocking it. I mean, any guy that can actually just continuously try and disarm mines, landmines, for example, is a hero in my book. But I think it's also a hero. It's something you have when you're very young, isn't it? You try to impersonate that hero. I know you, as a sort of a you know, bit of a cricketer in your spare time, <laughs> sort of, you know, you have or had a hero uh, that, that you followed. But Nelson, 1805, before victory went down to uh, south to Trafalgar, was followed by thousands of people in London when he was at home. He was a national
0: hero, and that's quite something difficult to follow. Cheryl Hu, I guess, is the answer to that question. Christopher, thank you, uh, <laughs> thank you as ever for joining me on the programme today, and thank you to uh, all our guests. If you want to get in touch, you can. The usual details apply, and you can follow us on Twitter at BFBS. SITREP is the address. We're back at the same time next week. Until then, goodbye. DAB Digital Radio and Satellite TV in the UK, online and on air around the world, around the world. this is the Forces Station, BFBS.